Welcome to the Centre for Army Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel Dean Cannon, heading up the British Army's Centre of Excellence for Leadership. For this podcast, I'm joined by former England cricketer, coach and now performance psychologist, Jeremy Snape. Jeremy's cricketing and then coaching success at the highest levels preceded a career which has branched out into performance psychology in other sports and the business world too. I started by asking him what leadership really means to him. Jeremy, thank you for joining us on the Centre for Army Leadership podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to have you along. And we tend to start with the same question to all of our podcast guests. And it's been said that you've got a, a fascination with the psychology of success and in and amongst that leadership, creating high performing teams and winning mindsets. But what does leadership really mean to you? Cool, it's a big question as a warm up. I usually need something to stretch my hamstrings with, but uh, straight into it. I think it's probably different levels. And, and I think the most important one is personal leadership, I guess, that trying to do the right thing in difficult situations. I think anyone can be a leader when the sun's on your face and the wind's on your back. But I think in adversity and complex situations, politically sensitive situations, trying to do the right thing in those difficult times, I think, is the key one. And that's something we can all do. It's very easy to put leaders up on a pedestal and say, oh, Mahatma Gandhi or Nelson Mandela. But I think we can all do that, try and do that more often. Um, then I think I've been very lucky to work with some great coaches and that ability to almost be a detective and build really close bonds with individuals and teams. I think that's a great skill as a leader. And then also in my work with Sporting Edge, working with CEOs of huge corporations, they have to you know, lead, create an incredible vision and align people, sometimes tens or hundreds of thousands of people across the world behind a particular vision. And I think that's a very different skill. So different levels of leadership calls for different um, skills and characteristics. But I think probably at the heart of it for me, it's trying to do the right thing. Yeah. Have you settled yourself on being able to describe a particular leadership style that you use or have other people said that you've got a particular style that they recognise? Yeah, I don't know. I don't think I hold a particularly formal leadership role. I, I probably see myself more after the cricket career as a as more of an entrepreneur, you know, setting up my own business. And I've got a coaching background through psychology and working with elite sports teams. So it's probably a coaching style of, of leader. Um, leading a tech business is, is quite interesting. It's been a huge area of challenge and growth for me. But um, yeah, I don't see myself as the bronze statue in the quadrangle you know I think I just you know try and work with people to get the best out of them and, and move forward to something better than we've got at the moment I guess that's it. Yeah do you think this was a, a development journey that could have taken different paths or was there something in your childhood and in, in the family when you were upbringing that particularly steered you first towards sport and leading in sport or the point you've got to now? It's a really interesting one um, certainly my family definitely kept my feet on the ground you know I was very fortunate to be in that uh, sort of 11 to 15 years all the talent programs and things county cricket and then captain England at 15 and just to give you an example of the kind of background my mum and dad we'd got a you know roof box on the car we were heading off to I think Bournemouth to go on holiday and these cricket trials were almost en route so we thought we'd get those out of the way first um, I was on 99 not out and the chief selector had to tell my mum who was in the car reading a book that I was you know in the England trials and I was 99 not out because um, they didn't really expect me to do anything and, and I guess you know having my name 
read out last in that uh, selection for that under-15s tournament was strange because they thought, oh, he's not got picked, but actually I was captain. Um, and that's why I was read out last. So it was a great honour at 15 to be all of a sudden, you know, making speeches in front of sort of dignitaries and things representing England as the yeah. captain with a blazer on and all sorts of things. So there must have been something there early. But as I say, that background of my family just sort of playing it down was probably a really good thing. Yeah. And then it wasn't long after that that you turned professional, I think at 16. Who were the people, the leaders in and around you and the teams at the time that particularly stand out now as formative in your early experience? Yeah, what an experience to move into a North Ants cricket team at the time that was just packed with international stars. So there were people like Alan Lamb, who was the incredibly charismatic leader, you know, who's instinctive, full of flair, so much fun, uh, mischievous, you know, an incredible... Uh, role model from that perspective. Kirtley Ambrose, the West Indian fast bowler, was in that team, steely, silent, did his talking with the ball, you know, a, a real leader in cricket in terms, but hardly said a word. But mm. when he spoke, you, you listened um, and he horrified the opposition and, and some just some brilliant people to learn from. So I think that team for me was full of talent, um, full of flair. We were inconsistent. And as a result, we didn't win the trophies that I think that team deserved to. But then moving to Gloucestershire, uh, which was an underdog team, really, under the leadership of um, John Bracewell and Mark Elaine, we managed to win five trophies in two years. And that was really transformational for the club. I think for English one-day cricket, actually, at the time, because we did some really innovative things with that team. And for me personally, because that's the sort of springboard that I got to go on and play for England. Yeah, and it was when you were playing for England in a one-day international match that it was in India, I believe. There was something that happened in that match that has prompted you onto this path that you've found yourself on now to force you to explore the psychology of high-performing athletes, elite athletes. What was it in that match or in that particular moment that has put you on this career path and brought you here. Can't believe you brought that up. Um, it was a balmy night, Eden Gardens, Calcutta, 2001. I'd been on a tour of Zimbabwe previously, got man of the match on my England debut, and Zim was sort of a good county side, if you like, a really good county side. The Flower Brothers were exceptional, but uh, it wasn't too big a step up. But then to go from playing in front of just a few thousand people or even 25,000 people at Lords to play in front of 120,000 people at Eden Gardens was huge. I remember there were riots in the streets for two days before with everyone trying to get tickets. It's the first time England had played there for, for a long time. So a huge, huge match. And I actually bowled okay. I, I remember handling the pressure there quite well. Uh, and when it came to the batting, the, the run rate was sort of creeping up and, and starting to escalate. And England needed this hero to step forward into the breach and knock off the runs calmly. Sadly, that wasn't me. I ran out Freddie Flintoff, who was our only chance of winning. And I just remember being stood in the middle of this cauldron of noise with this deep noise echoing around the stadium. It was like a cheap school disco reverberating through your sternum. And um, I just remember thinking, what have you done? you know, what have you done? You've run out England's best player. You're not going to win from here. You know, you're not good enough to be here. What are, what are you thinking kind of thing? And what are all the press going to say? And what, what are all these critics going to talk about? And it was in this blur of, you know, being self-absorbed, worrying about the fear of failure and the consequence of failure mm. 
that I actually forgot to watch the next ball that was coming down from Harbhajan Singh, who was a pretty classy bowler with mystery balls and whatever. But I don't know what he bowled because I wasn't even looking at it. I just tried this huge slog to hit the ball into Delhi. But actually, we were playing in Calcutta at the time, so it would have been a, a good hit. Um, and I got out and I walked back to the pavilion and I just thought, what was that? It was like an out-of-body experience. Yeah. My body felt hot and tense and my brain was spinning at 100 miles an hour. And I just remember thinking, how come I wasn't prepared for this? You know, we spent hours and hours and hours hitting balls, catching balls, bowling balls at a small target, talking about tactics, writing on a flip chart that we're going to bowl at the top of off stump or we're going to rotate the strike and build partnerships. And it's great. But ultimately, we've all got this mental ceiling, this breaking point. And I met it on that day. And I just remember thinking that not only, it, I mean, I, c- I can handle not being good enough. That that was a, a common, you know, issue. But when I was playing at my best and got beaten by, you know, a top Australian or a mystery ball or a Murrelithran or a Warren or whatever, fine. But when I beat myself, that was the bit that really yeah. felt like a, a huge moment. So really from that moment on, and, and again, in cricket, it's very easy to say the bowlers, you know, the players in the dressing room sort of say, oh, you know, did it spin? Was it the doozer and all this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually inside, I knew that I wasn't even thinking straight. So I started to read a lot about it, learn a lot about it. And then I found that this topic, this is back in 2001, was sports psychology. Um, I managed to get onto a master's degree at Loughborough University uh, while I was still playing because I just thought it was great. I thought it would help my playing, but I also thought it was a huge opportunity to try and you know, move into this space, which was clearly opening up not only in sport, but in, in wider, you know, professional work to understand ourselves. So yeah, the master's degree then gave me a chance to work with, you know, some amazing teams. Interestingly, I did use some of the skills in a final at Edgebaston. We were playing Leicestershire, a 2020 game, and the pressure was on again, four to win off the last few balls. And it was down to me. And I, it was easy to have those flashbacks. Yeah. Um, and I thought, this is the moment. This is the moment, you know. And, and interestingly, in India, I was so fixated and consumed by what might happen as a consequence of failure that I didn't stay in the moment and watch the next ball. But what I'd learned from the master's degree was that by focusing not on the outcome or the scoreboard or the result or what anyone's going to say after the match, the only thing that was truly powerful and in, in my control was that next delivery. So I remember Azam Mahmood, the top Pakistani bowler, was running in with his in-swinging Yorkers. Um, and all I was focused on was getting myself into the best balanced position to hit the ball hard and straight. And I was actually focused on my breathing because I'd learned about switching off your analytical brain and going into this more instinctive phase of, mm. of performance. And I, strangely, as the crowd were shouting at their loudest, as the TV was zooming in at its closest, I was focusing on my breathing and my balance. And as a result of that, I was in the perfect position to hit this ball, which actually wasn't too bad. I played one of the best shots of my life, hit the ball through mid-wicket for four, and then the next minute getting sprayed in champagne, yeah. and I'd had redemption. And, and that really shows the difference between you know your best day and your worst day is in your head a lot of the time. And, and that's what I'm so passionate about now, trying to share the models and the frameworks and the you know, insights that we've learned at Sporting Edge with business people or the military or whatever, yeah. because I think often our own you know, biggest enemy is in our head. 
And yeah. if we can you know, squash that, then we can feel proud of ourselves. And again, mm. that's part of that personal leadership. So when I, when I read that you'd had an experience in that match, I didn't know what that experience was. And I kind of assumed that it was a positive experience. It then meant you wanted to look into doing sports psychology and that sort of thing. Well, it was. And, and ultimately it was. <laughs> it, Is that a conversation you have often with clients or sports people now and say that you have to identify the failures, don't be afraid of failure, ideally you're going to learn from it and make yourself better? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of trite, uh, you know, motivational quotes, isn't there, you know, from all, all sorts of people about failure. But, but ultimately, we have to be self-aware and we have to be courageous to keep moving forward. I think we're at our best when we're pushing out of our comfort zone and trying new things, but they're new. They're different. They're going to take some experimentation and we shouldn't expect them to be perfect and to do yeah. it first time. But yeah, I think for me, especially around pressure, which is going to be relevant for your audience, you know, the people that talk about pressure are the ones that get through it. Um, the teams that talk about pressure, that talk about emotion, that talk about doubt and derailers, those what-if scenarios, those scenario plans, it actually starts to normalize it. And interestingly, on that night in India, we'd never spoken about the crowd being a, a, a sort of a threat mm. um, and a potential, you know, for emotional hijack. I, I wasn't on the pitch, you know, in my yeah. own head. But I think with teams now, I try and talk about what's the worst thing that could happen. You know, what could go wrong here? Because what we're looking for there is in these novel situations that are at the edge of your comfort zone, we're actually looking for a considered response rather than an emotional reaction. Mm. Now, our emotional reaction as humans is to stay safe, so we'll try and get out of the way and get back to safety as soon as we can. That could be a rash, rash decision, could be a terrible slog shot, it could be an email to your boss late at night when you're frustrated. Any of those things are an attempt in the short term to get you back to safety. But when we're at our best, we embrace that threat, we embrace that challenge, and we're able to consider a number of options very quickly often, because we've rehearsed them or considered them or debated them yeah. in a calm room maybe weeks before. So I think if you want to be a high performer, you've got to be prepared to confront your own self-doubt, your own fears and your fears as a group. And when you discuss that, far from showing vulnerability and breaking the team, it actually galvanizes the team and gives you more resolve yeah. as you approach those situations. Yeah, talking of galvanising teams, you, you had further success at Leicestershire, winning two trophies as the captain. And did you make a conscious decision to identify yourself as a leader, as the captain, if that makes sense, in that you had to do something different rather than just being part of the team? I am now the captain. I'm going to have to do things differently. I'm going to change my personality. I'm going to have to develop my leadership skills in some way, or did it? just kind of come naturally and you'd learn from the people you'd seen doing it before? I, th I think I'd been a senior player both at Gloucestershire and Leicestershire when I joined and there were some strong leaders in those groups previously that meant that they were the natural captain but as all things in sport you know eras end and it's time for a change maybe a new coach comes in and decides they want a different captain and, and that's what happened for me so I think I was actually a very good senior player or vice captain. Mm. I'm not sure how good a front front man I was um, because I tend to be a little bit cautious. I tend to be a thinker rather than a, 
an instinctive risk taker. Um, so I think somebody who had that bold courage to go forward and say, we're going this way, I'd be very good as their foil for mm-hmm. presenting different options. So, yeah, I mean, I was very innovative, I think, in the way I thought about cricket. I clearly understood the game well. That was a strength. And I was good with people. You know, I'd, I'd spend a lot of time working with individuals. And I think that ability to do the detective work almost around the motivations and the fears and the sensitivities with, with each of the individuals and trying to create a different game plan and different style of communication for each of them. I think that was my strength. You know, I, I was very conscious that I wasn't the best cricketer standing out in front of the team and just dominating. We had some other better players around me and that's probably an area of of weakness for me because not that I was the Mike Brealy, but but sort of a, you know, you also want your leader to be leading from the front on the pitch. And while I did that on some occasions, I didn't do it. Certainly in four-day cricket, I wasn't as strong as I was in one day. I suspect through your playing career, you saw quite a lot of senior players, captains, coaches perhaps, who weren't very good or had a style that you didn't think was effective or appropriate. And you learn you learn quite a lot from seeing people do it badly. Yeah, and, and I think, you know, it's so important to be honest and authentic, I think, because I sat in so many, I was a pro for 19 years, and I think you know, the, there wasn't a year in that period when we didn't say we were going to win everything you know, most teams, you know, somebody stands up and says, this is our year. And you sort of look around. I'd come from Gloucestershire that was winning everything and went to Leicester, which had been really struggling. And people were standing up saying, we're going to win every trophy. And I was sort of looking at it and thinking, this isn't the attitude. We've got to be honest about what we've got, mm. the resources we've got. And what we actually did at Leicestershire was we sort of competed in four-day cricket, but we weren't strong because we didn't have that depth and talent. But what we did have was an opportunity to dominate in this new format of the game, which was the 2020. So this was coming back in, I think, 2005 time. And while everybody else was thinking it was like a pub tournament and they were just getting bowled out for 60, we had some training sessions and almost worked out the tempo and the style that we needed. And we brought in some really innovative approaches there. So we'd have pretty much all our batsmen padded up from ball one which made us look like a pretty bad school team Mm. uh, expecting a collapse. But what it did give us is the agility to deploy different players, left-handers, right-handers, big hitters, rotators. Mm. And I think that's something I learned, that keeping that tempo at perhaps 7 out of 10 for as long as you can in a 2020 game, rather than having all your big hitters at the front and then collapsing in a heap and having to regroup. You know, we we worked out that risk tolerance and and that tempo. I think that worked really well. Yeah. You mentioned you went and studied sports psychology at Loughborough and went on to coach cricket teams, but you also moved across to rugby, helped out Eddie Jones with the England rugby team. Were there directly transferable skills or did you have to adjust how you were coaching and leading the rugby team, vice cricket teams, just because of a different atmosphere, a different context, different type of people perhaps? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question because at the time, I'd recently retired from international cricket and county cricket and I was coaching South Africa and Sri Lanka into you know World Cups and big tournaments. And I probably became more of an assistant coach type role. You know, yes, I was majoring on the psychology, but I was also throwing balls in the nets, you know, taking the baseball mitt to the fast bowlers out in the middle of the pitch and being able to talk to them about the techniques. And, you know, even mm. in the Indian Premier League with Shane Warne, you know, he'd bowl leg spin before his 
you know, toss of the coin or whatever, and, and I'd catch the ball for him and tell him what I saw. So that that ability to be a mirror to somebody and gave me much more cricket and insight in, in that world. But when I moved over to rugby, I didn't have any of that. And although I'd played a bit of rugby at school, it's a completely different level, obviously, to go in and work with some of these incredible players. So again, I was using questions a lot more, some of them very naive. But I guess this comes back to one of the interventions as a coach or a therapist or a counsellor or whatever it is that we're trying to do. I think the main intervention is our empathy. Mm -hmm. And I think we often, and I've made this mistake, I, I went to work with a team in Australia, got off the plane, you know, I was sort of given the big rap to come in and work with this team full of stars. And within 20 minutes, I was rearranging somebody's action that I'd never met before and he was an international cricketer you know and that was just my eagerness to prove what I knew but it's insecurity really mm. I think what I've learned now is that the best leaders and coaches and psychologists or whatever they don't just pile straight in with advice they sit back and they listen and they observe and they join the dots slowly and it's, if the intervention is really going to work and really going to be sti stick, then it's, it's got to be the athlete or it's got to be the recipient mm. that makes that change, not the leader changing them. So that doorway to change opens inward, if you like. And, and it's that ability to understand that your leader or your coach really cares about you at a personal level as well as a professional level, rather than just being a you know, performance tool to... Yeah. get them more sales or get them more runs or whatever it might be in that context. So I think what I'd worked with the cricketers on was about staying calm and being instinctive. And, and there's lots of gaps in cricket to be able to reframe that and reset yourself. Whereas in an open play sport like rugby, you need to be at a very different level of emotional arousal, especially the forwards. And it's always on. Mm. So we had this ability again to try and reframe the players so that it, they were thinking about okay where's the ball not where's the man because you might want to be aggressive back to the man whereas the ball's a bit more objective yeah. and neutral so that was one refocus point and the other was next job so so you're thinking in 30 second burst rather than carrying the emotion from perhaps mistakes or scuffles or what might have happened in the last 10 minutes you're carrying that and it's mm. contaminating your play in the next stage of the game so some really interesting um, experiences, and I certainly learned a lot from Eddie Jones. You know, he was forensic and relentless with his ambition with that team and ultimately drove the standards up to get them to equal the All Blacks world record of 18 wins in a row. Yeah. So fascinating to be part of that, including that 3-0 tour of Australia. Yeah. As a outsider almost coming into the sport, both for the individuals in it and the organisation, then there's some advantages in not being one of the individuals that's grown up in that climate, not being part of the organisation, to be able to see the things that might need changing from a complete outsider's perspective. Yeah, I think the British cycling team called it expert novices. You know, you're trying to bring an expert in from a parallel field, but they're a complete novice with what you do. So I think as long as the environment can tolerate your stupid questions and why do you throw the ball like this and why are you standing mm -hmm. over there and why are you shouting this, then you know, then, then you can get away with it. But again, I think if the feeling is that you genuinely care about them trying to get better and, and you know, improve and understand themselves and each other better, then, then you're okay. But yeah, certainly fascinating to work across cricket, 
rugby and also football. Mm. And you did um, some work in South Africa with teams going right back to basics, looking to identify identity, purpose, reasons and symbology and that sort of stuff as well. Yeah, that was an incredible project. I mean, I'd worked with the South African team. They were full of talent. This was back in about 2008. I started working with them through to about 2011. And they were destined to be the number one test team in the world. And that was everyone's focus. And, and we're very good in our businesses or organizations of setting these extrinsic goals. We want to be number one. We want to win the World Cup. We want to get to a billion dollars turnover or whatever the corporate equivalent might be. And those motivations are incredibly powerful until you get there. And what I saw with the South African team was a team that had come from the isolation period of the apartheid era when Nelson Mandela was in prison. There was a complete void of sport being played. And then they got reintroduced. And over a 20-year period, South African cricket had matured where they'd got various targets that they wanted the team to be representative of the rainbow nation and at this point when I started to work with them they'd got a team that was actually I think there were seven cultures in the team so they'd got Kauza, Zulu, uh, Muslim, Hashim Amla was Muslim, uh, Afrikaans, English you know an incredibly diverse and representative team and they were all picked on merit so this is quite hmm. you know a coming of age and the question really was can this team get to number one with this diversity so they beat England in England. That was my first job. I retired halfway through my testimonial year, stuck a pea green tracksuit on and uh, sat on the opposition balcony, which didn't go down particularly well. But um, So that was my first job. Um, they beat England in England. They did really well in India. And the final hurdle was to get to beat Australia. And, and they did that. So they got to number one. Incredible celebrations. You know, you know heroes were made. Perhaps fortunes were made as well. But something changed as soon as they got to number one and, and they slipped back, basically went back down to number four. So it really challenged us to think about what can be bigger than winning, what can be bigger than being the best in the world, because that clearly wasn't a good enough motivator yet. Yeah. It's what every coach uses. So we tried to find a, an emotional competitive advantage to galvanise the team, and, and there was two angles really of it. First was identity and the second was purpose. And what was interesting when I interviewed a few of the parents of the players, they saw their sons as springbok cricketers, not pro-tier cricketers. So when Nelson Mandela was released, the um, rugby team were allowed to keep the uh, springbok iconic logo and shirt, which, of course, was uh, the opposition that kept him in, in jail. But the rest of the teams got named the pro-tier, which is the national flower. So now you've got six foot seven, Mornay Morkel, you know, steaming in. Uh, kissing the flower uh, on his shirt, you know, when he when he has a great moment, and they didn't really know what it meant. So, I did a little bit of research at Kirsten Bosch Botanical Gardens and found that the protea starts its life cycle with bushfire on the Table Mountain sort of area. It's indigenous there, and there's this resin seed pod that melts, and it's the first to colonise this black scorched earth. So, I was always looking for this authentic identity from the team that you could use and reflect into performance so coping with adversity resilience being fast to adapt these were brilliant characteristics mm. that the team could pull through there was also some stuff from greek mythology about proteus being adaptable and knowing the truth yeah. um, so we we sort of pulled that through as well but ultimately that came through with the team into a series of rituals and 
and uh, activities. So the team song A.B. de Villiers rewrote from being Boca Boca, which is clearly historical, to having five different chorus lines. Um, the induction process for the players became uh, standing around a campfire wherever they were in the world, somebody passing around a fresh protea and talking and telling stories about the new player coming into this protea family with their resilience, their adaptability, you know, how they were going to need to be part of this new era. And over the fire, that's when they got presented with the cap mm. because that's authentic to the protea starting its life cycle in the wild. So this connection to the authentic identity of their logo and, and what they stood for really started to accelerate their performance and also worked with Owen Eastwood, who wrote a great book, Belonging, um, and we worked together on that project. And he found this Swahili philosophy called Ubuntu, which basically says that you can't judge your success in life by your fame or being number one or your car or salary or whatever. The only way you can judge your success in life is by the impact you have on other people. So again, that long-term selflessness that great teams have needed a purpose that was outside the team. Mm. The purpose wasn't getting to number one, actually. The purpose was to inspire the Rainbow Nation that this really diverse team could give them hope for the future. So we took some boys into, so we took the players into a school for a secret visit. And, um, you know, these two young boys of the under 10 and under 11s cricket teams looked up at the classroom and they've got these, you know, Jack Callis, A.B. de Villiers, Dale Stane in, in the seats. And they said, thank you so much for coming to our school. We'd like to give you a lesson in Ubuntu. Um, when you listen to the um, umpires and hold your head up high when they do a bad mistake, that lets us respect our teacher. And when you huddle with seven different cultures arm in arm, that lets us play with the kids from different backgrounds in our school. So don't think this is about you. Think about the lessons you leave for us. So it was an incredibly powerful project. So identity and purpose being two key drivers. And actually, they stayed at the top of the world rankings for four years after that. And yeah. there were some incredible success stories from it. So I think when teams are self-focused and short-term focused, that's when we see you know, corruption, ego, all those kind of mistakes coming through. But when teams are selfless and long-term thinking, then often we get the right decisions made and they build something that they can be incredibly proud of, which I know the Proteas are. Yeah. And in that particular period of time for that nation, it's bigger than sport. 100%. But, you know, back to your first question, what is leadership? I think leaders go first and try and do the right thing in these difficult situations so that other people can see it. Now, that might be somebody in your family. It might be somebody in your business or your classroom. It could be somebody alongside you, you know, in warfare. But it could also be a much bigger arena, you know, where you're actually influencing, you know, we know social media and, and media in general has a chance to amplify all of these behaviors, good and bad. So leaders have characteristics. Teams have a culture, whether you like it or not. They have a reputation. So I guess it's just whether we're actively investing in that to make it the best it can possibly be so that that ripple effect is as positive as it possibly can be. Yeah. Jeremy, you subsequently founded Sporting Edge. What was your ambition for doing so? And have you got some sort of notable landmark successes from it so far? Well, it's been pretty organic and chaotic, you know, for the last 15 years. But ultimately, that moment in India where I felt like I didn't have the mental skills 
or the perspective I needed to thrive in that situation. I knew that had held me back and I knew it was a, a regret. So I wanted to, to, to create a toolkit for people to be able to use that in their own professions. So because I'd built those strong relationships and I was trusted in some of these inner circles, I actually did my master's degree uh, study on the leadership of Nasser Hussein, who was my England captain, and Martin Johnson, who just won the World Cup, who lives locally. So I was quite lucky to be able to interview them. But I actually video interviewed them and showed a few of my clients as well, my corporate clients that I was supporting. They said, oh, that's brilliant to be able to sit and watch them chatting through how they did it and these building blocks of how they built trust or how they um, you know, developed their strategy. So that model then got scaled in effect. So I started to interview top class thinkers and performers um, you know, wherever I was. So that could be elite sports coaches, so people like Dave Brailsford, Eddie Jones, the late great Shane Warne, you know, how these people think and how they build high performance systems. Um, I was very lucky to do some work at Sandhurst on the generals course, so interviewing a few military leaders, Cirque du Soleil, Formula One, neuroscientists. And, and I think I've followed my own curiosity in a way of trying to build this toolkit for individuals, leaders and teams to try and think, okay, what are the key building blocks of high performance? Well, it might be a growth mindset. It might be how to create an innovative culture. It might be how to have a difficult conversation, how to set goals. All of these elements are common across all domains. So by creating a Netflix type library, we've been able to capture those thoughts of the people who are experts and who've delivered success, but they're speaking really openly and reflectively and authentically. Mm. But then when you're under pressure as a boss, perhaps in a business or whatever, and you're searching and typing things in about how to do something, you've then got the wisdom of all these people on your phone or at your fingertips. So yeah, Sporting Edge is, is all about sharing this um, winning mindset, if you like, from across a range of different people. And that could be in speeches where I'd deliver the workshops or speeches with the videos coming in behind me so we get you know almost like guest guest interviews coming in uh, onto the stage for a couple of minutes or it could be the digital platform which is also available and you've got your own very successful podcast called inside the minds of champions have there been some really notable people that you've had in that have said something that's really resonated yeah, again, I think it's a real privilege to meet people and to spend that time understanding them. And, and it's something I'm fascinated about, so I'm not doing it. There's no adverts or anything in my podcast. It's just really to try and share these incredible stories and try and understand it for myself. But through the work with the South African cricket team, I got a chance to meet two incredible people that were in prison with Nelson Mandela for 26 years, Ahmed Katrada and Dennis Goldberg. And what was fascinating about their story when we talk about selflessness there wasn't enough evidence for them to go to prison with Nelson Mandela, but they knew that if all eight of them didn't go to prison with Nelson Mandela, then he probably wouldn't come out, but they needed to protect him. So they sacrificed the best part of their lives for 26 years to support not only Nelson Mandela, but the principle of getting rid of apartheid. Mm. You know, And the prison guards would wave a picture of their daughter's wedding in front of them, and not one of them cracked over that period because... They knew that if one of them showed weakness in that moment, then they would break that bond between this team. So people often talk about, you know, who's the high performing team you've interviewed? And, and that's probably it. You know, I mean, I can't think of any more adversity to be, mm. you know, on that island, shark infested water all around it. And, you know, 26 years in isolation. So 
those two guys sadly passed away now, but a huge privilege to have them in the platform to be able to keep that message alive. Um, Shane Warne obviously became a great friend and we sadly lost him. So, you know, having some of his content is brilliant. Um, and then I love the futurists and the neuroscientists who are trying to, you know, bring self-awareness to what actually happens in our brain and with our own well-being. I think that's a, a huge area for personal improvement to understand that more. And then, you know, we all know the disruption that technology is bringing and that polarizes people, but ultimately we've got to embrace it. So people that are trying to, you know, position that for us and explain how we can embrace that and use that within our organizations. I think those people are fascinating as well. So yeah, certainly lucky to meet everybody. Yeah. So you've done a broad range of bits of your career in different sectors and industries, now doing a lot of work with businesses. We get a lot of businesses approach the Centre for Army Leadership to want to come and talk to us about how the military does leadership. Do you think that business can be sort of isolated as an entirely different ball game or that the military leadership, the sporting leadership can all directly transition across to help business leaders with stuff? Or do you think they've got particular challenges which make them unique? Well, I think every context, every business thinks they're unique, but I think it's the same thing where human performers aren't we and our first enemy is ourselves as we spoke about then I think we've got to try and get the best out of those people around us with diverse talent and more than ever we need real um, you know diversity of thought and diversity of experience in our team so that makes it harder to manage because it's it's probably easier for us to choose people that are just like us but that creates an echo chamber and what we need is conflict constructive conflict to challenge our decisions so that's a skill in itself and then as I mentioned reading the markets, reading the patterns, reading the, the niche that you can exploit. Just like in sport with a rugby player trying to get through a gap, you're trying to position your business into a, a position in the market where you can exploit it for a period of time and, and stay there as long as you can. But I think what I've seen and one of the you know mental characteristics that I try and coach into the companies that I work with is that if you see a top performer in sport who's there for 10 years, by definition, they're probably 10 different athletes because in every match that they play, they have probably 20 cameras around the stadium and every bit of live footage is streamed to your opponents, coaches and analysts that are dissecting your weaknesses and that opposition are going to come for your weaknesses and exploit it. And they're also going to keep you know, the game away from your strengths. They're not going to let you play how you want to play. So by definition... Elite sports stars have to be unpredictable. They have to keep growing and testing and learning in new areas while they're in the spotlight, mm. which is, I think, why it's such a great analogy that any leader in any business will always feel in the spotlight. There isn't a time when you can go off and live in a you know wooden hut in the mountains for two years and reinvent yourself. You've got to do it on the job, and I think that's one of the challenges. But again, being open to that and being... Um, you know, vulnerable as well as strong, I think is a really interesting dynamic for leaders. So I, I think, you know, high performance is high performance. And I really enjoy trying to translate the first principles from each of the different industries and, and trying to help those people to improve. Yeah, I make a point of asking all the businesses that come to speak to us, you know, why, why do you come to the army particularly? Um, and one of the most interesting points someone made was, well, because you're not interested in profit, you don't have profits to make, but you're operating at the very highest stakes beyond profits, it's life and death. And therefore, you're obviously thinking about it 
through a, a very purist lens as far as leadership in, in high stakes situations goes and, and therefore that is ultimately high performance at the, at the very right hand edge of the spectrum and that's why they seek us out it seems but um, there are other organisations similarly certainly with um, elements of the police forces and, and the other services as well doing similar things uh, there does seem to be a a hunger for a, an alternative perspective and if there's one that doesn't involve profit then perhaps that makes it a bit yeah and, and again I think it's you know what society is looking for I think we've had an era where it's smash and grab and who can be a billionaire and who can you know help the business to be a unicorn and whatever but it's at what cost mm. um, so I think there's some really interesting philosophical debates in sport and business at the moment about how can we make sure our business has a strong ethical core so that we you know get the best out of everyone that's here but we do it in a way that supports the planet and society at large. I think this idea of me winning and everyone else losing is is getting a bit outdated. And, and I think it's time for a, a new era of leadership that perhaps has a little bit less ego, um, certainly has the drive, but wants to do it in a more sustainable and ethical way. Yeah. We often talk at the Centre for Leadership about the, the broad range of skills required to be a, a leader and the fact that it's all situational, it all depends on the context that you're in at one particular time. And that can be a bit daunting to say that you have to have a wide range of leadership skills and styles that you apply at the right time to the right people. What sort of advice would you give to young soldiers, young officers coming into the army or going anywhere to sort of reassure them that they will continue to develop over time? And or what's the best start point if they are slightly intimidated by that demand? Yeah, again, we, we sort of have this comparison to iconic leaders, don't we? The, we tend, tend to think that's what leadership is. But I think if we think back to personal leadership about trying to do your best with what you have today, with what you know today, with the situation you are faced with today, and that's what you've done. But then the important part is to reflect on that and think, was that the right thing? Could I have done it any differently? Did I understand the wider context and what can I learn from that? And I want to be better this month than I was last month. I think that's that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, yeah, I think you're, you're always going to make mistakes. You're always going to have other people you can learn from. But I think it's just being aware of the context. If, if you understand, you know, different lenses, you know, the moral lens, the the legal lens, the strategic lens the commercial lens whatever those guiding principles are in your organization and then it's really about observing and looking at the context and, and trying to make a reaction based on that yeah um, and we reassure people that it's a continual journey it's a continual process you've never finished on your leadership development you need to keep going keep picking off new little bits that you can improve on actually think about it reflect do something different move on to the next one yeah, I think we have a tendency to want to stay safe and be brilliant at what we know we're comfortable doing. But actually, as you become a leader in different contexts, you understand you've got to you know, play way out of your comfort zone and learn different things. And those are some of the most accelerated learning experiences you're going to have. So I think I would encourage people not to see their career as a sort of linear trajectory from bottom left to top right but a squiggly line that's going to take them all over the place and actually that's where a lot of the most 
um, you know, satisfying and, and fun experiences are as well, where you had no expectations, but you just threw yourself into it and learnt as you go. Yeah. So you've had a, a very diverse set of experiences, uh, met a huge number of inspirational leaders and characters. Is there one in particular you can pick out and say that's that's my go-to person as a reference point for excellent leadership? I don't think there'd be one person. That's part of my quest to try and build the perfect leader from all these different components. You know, some have got great, um, you know, intellectual capacity. Some people have got great empathy. Some people have got brilliant strategic skills. Some people have got amazing uh, storytelling ability. You know, some people are incredibly analytical. All of those skills, you know, are relevant. But I guess if there's one principle that the leaders that impress me most is their integrity, you know, to, to do the right thing and to be consistent and predictable in a way. Mm-hmm. I think we've all worked with leaders who make mistakes, but if you genuinely believe that they're trying to do the right thing for the organisation, then then that's a good place to start. Yeah. And is there a, a reference, a, a book or a speech, perhaps even a podcast that you go to or you direct people to if they're looking for something good on leadership? I've actually been reading uh, this book, which I shall grab, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, which is 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. And again, I think there's lots of brilliant books out there, but I'm really interested in this next generation of leadership. And I think the way technology, ethics, sustainability, all of these bigger picture things, when we challenge ourselves to think differently and, and think about some of these bigger issues, then I think that can be quite thought provoking. Um, but yeah, there's, there's lots of tactical books um, out there and podcasts, but um, I've certainly been impressed by some of the ideas in this and started to... Yeah test myself and if if you have the opportunity to go back and speak to a young jeremy and say this is how it might pan out what's a bit of advice that you would give him i think part of the fun is the naivety and the you know mistakes you make and i wouldn't change that course i don't think but i think if there's one thing i'd love to have known it was that you've got everything you need so back yourself. I think there was always players that seemed to be more confident than me and seemed to sort of stride into the room and swing the door open and, you know, announce themselves. And I was always quite impressed with that because I didn't have it. But often that's bravado and I didn't know that at the time. And I think if, if I, you know, again, coming from quite humble roots, I think if my parents had just said, you know, you've got everything you need, just keep, keep walking forward and, and you'll be fine. But uh, yeah, I've been so lucky, you know, I tested myself in elite sport, learned some great things, made some big mistakes, made some great friends, travelled the world, and now I'm getting a chance to meet and pick the brains of some incredible people and build a business around it. So uh, it's a great privilege to be on that path. Well, it's been a great privilege to speak to you. Really appreciate your time coming to speak to us. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Jeremy's wide and varied experience of leadership, coaching and performance psychology gave me a captivating perspective on how the lessons he has learned over his career can help all leaders in their personal and professional development. He thinks that ultimately leadership is about doing the right thing, which is well aligned with the Army's perspective of leadership, being grounded first in its values and standards. Jeremy's moment of inspiration, the thing which drove him onto the path of exploring leadership development and the psychology of how to gain a sporting edge, was actually a moment of failure on his part, a mistake on a single ball in a high-profile match. But from that failure, he generated the motivation to personally succeed, to beat himself, 
and then go on to help others succeed too. In delivering high performance, which the Army always strives for, Jeremy spoke of the value in distinguishing between when to analyse difficult moments and when to rely on instinct to get you through, and the skill involved in recognising which approach to use when. It's what the Army recognises as situational leadership, having the ability to match the right leadership style and skills to the people that need leading in a particular moment. Honesty and authenticity shone through in our conversation, alongside empathy and the acceptance that as a leader, there's always going to be room for development of your leadership skills, regardless of your experience. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please share it with colleagues and friends and add your thoughts to the debate on social media. For more information on British Army leadership or to get in touch with the team, search for the Centre for Army Leadership website or find us on all your main social media platforms.